0: Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. This fall, we are opening up the letter of 1 John. We believe it is a timely book in the life of the church. John is writing to a church that is divided over theological differences and confusion about how to follow Jesus in the midst of division. John's answer is love. God's love for us is immeasurable, and so our love for one another should be as well. It's a call to unity and care for one another in the midst of division. We're glad that you've joined us for this series. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings at 9 and 1030 a.m. Last time I was in front of you all, uh, I had a few things to say about the Broncos. Um... And I had a few things to say about the Cowboys. And what you need to understand is that that was all coming from a place of compassion. That I, I know what it is like to root for a team that's struggling. And um, I did forget as I was making those statements that the Broncos and Cowboys played two weeks from then. Uh, but even last week when I was talking to so many of you, I was so confident uh, about the game that day. I was so confident. Like there's just no, yeah, we were going to crush And then before I know it, in the middle of the fourth quarter, we're down 30 to zero. And there was something about pride coming before a fall or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if some of you sent in like that clip to the Broncos. It felt very personal. It felt like they knew what I had said. So if that was you, I don't appreciate that. Um, But what I will say is that uh, you know it's bad when people actually won't talk smack when you've gotten beaten that badly. Like literally at my inbox, it had like two emails of people like, they were just sending their condolences. They were like, I'm so sorry that that is what happened. And I just wanna say, I really appreciate your graciousness and just respecting my privacy in this time <laughs> as I grieve. So um, yeah, it was, a fun, it was a fun week. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like that was probably, it feels like it was like a month ago, but it's still, the, it's still fresh. So just thank you um, for everyone who was compassionate to end that. Uh, and the funny thing about that is that's just classically what it means to be a Cowboys fan. Like honestly, for the last 25 years, if you are confident that they are going to do something amazing, they will show up and completely disappoint you. Like it, you can just have no confidence in the Cowboys. To be a Cowboys fan is to live in a time of uncertainty segue into the message, we live in a time of uncertainty, right? Amen. Can I get an amen on that? We are living through a time that it just feels like change is coming at a rapid, rapid rate. Feels like it's hard to plan for the future. It feels like whether it's political unrest or things that are going in in our lives personally, just feels like we are living through an age of uncertainty where we don't really know what's coming next. And if that is you this morning, if you are are in that place. I feel like I've talked to so many people over coffee or breakfast or lunch over the last few months and really the last few years. Everyone feels like they are just living in a time of uncertainty. I would say very few people I'm talking to are are just saying that they're crushing it right now or that they're thriving and and just kind of taking life and, and in control of things. Like all of us feel pretty weary, pretty worn out and pretty tired because we have been living in a sustained pace of uncertainty. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to know you're not alone. There's a lot of sociologists and psychologists who have been talking about this. And one of them in particular, I think, captures uh, this season that we're living in. His name is Ian Golding. and He says, we are living through an era of intense turbulence, disillusionment, and bewilderment. Deepening geopolitical tensions are transforming international relations, and political tribalism is revealing deep fissures within countries. The spread of exponential technologies is upending long-held assumptions about security, and politics, economics, and so much more. At least two factors distinguish the current phase of globalization from past iterations. First. The accelerated pace of change is making it virtually impossible to plan ahead. The speed of transformation and its effects on markets and firms and labor is astonishing. Second, the interdependence of global financial and trading systems and supply chains means that even the smallest of local glitches can have planetary ramifications. And while the world has never been more intertwined, it seems harder than ever to solve the most pressing transnational problems. And this was written uh, for the World Economic Forum. But what I find funny about this quote is that it was written in two. 2019 before everything really hit the fan in 2020 right and so it, it, this has just been this long period of time where we have been living through an age of uncertainty And as we come to a close on the letter of 1 John and John's final words to these churches that he's been writing to, as we come to the the final uh, things that he wants to say, some of the most important things he wants to say, we have to remember that John has been writing to churches who are experiencing a time of intense uncertainty. I mean, there is division in this church. As we said over and over again, there have been people who are leaving the church. Families have been divided and split apart. Old friends have become new enemies. I mean, people have just been, been shattering the communities that John has pastored for years. And he's stepping into that moment, that uncertainty to try to give the people of God, the people who have remained some semblance of certainty, something that they can be sure of in an age of uncertainty. That's the purpose of these final verses is to just give his people something they can hang on to in a world that feels incredibly uncertain. And my hope today for us is that it will do the same thing for our church that it did for John's in his day. That as he talks about the three different things we can hang on to, which have to do with our behavior, how we're supposed to live in a time of uncertainty, that as he talks about our identity, who we are in an age of uncertainty. And as he talks about God, who our Savior is in a time of uncertainty, that they are things that we can cling to and hold on to to remain faithful and true to him, even in an age of uncertainty. So if you would please pray with me today. Heavenly Father, God, I know so many of us are weary and just worn down. Uh, exhausted. I think of even just my conversation before the service at nine o'clock of, of a few of us just talking about how we can't wait to get to Thanksgiving break to take a little time off. God, it feels like we've been just living through a constant season of unknown. And yet, God, none of it is unknown to you. And as we come to your word today, as we come to the words of your apostle John, the beloved disciple, as we close this letter, God, I pray that the certainty that characterized his life would characterize our own. That the hope and assurance that he gives to his community would foster assurance and confidence in us, even in an age of uncertainty. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So the first thing that John says we can be certain of in an age of uncertainty is how we should behave as the people of God, how we should live as the people of God. And he says that the people of God are a people who will not continue to sin, that the people of God are not. people who will continue struggling with sin. And if you remember, this is not new information. This is actually one of the main themes throughout the book of John that he's hit over and over and over again. It's these final three things are kind of John's greatest hits. And what he's saying is that the people of God are a people who do not continue sinning. If you remember, as we've talked through this idea that John reiterates over and over and over again throughout the book, is that it's not that the people of God won't sin at all. That once Jesus is our Lord and Savior that we will just reach some state of perfection and never sin ever again in our lives. What we've talked about is that he is calling the people of God to not live in the habitual, unrepentant state of sinning. That the people of God are a people who take sin seriously. And if you also remember from his context, the, the churches he's writing to, there were false teachers who were saying, sin isn't an issue. It's not a big deal. You don't need to worry about it. God is spirit and and we're physical. And so he doesn't really have anything to do with the physical. And so whatever we do with our bodies or however we live or how we treat other people doesn't really matter because God is just spiritual. And so sin isn't something that we have to take seriously. And John's response to that throughout this letter has been no, the people of God take sin seriously, that sin is an issue. And that God calls his people to live without sin. And so as we struggle through this life, we don't give in to our fleshly desires or we don't treat people however we want to, to treat people. We live according to God's standards. And, and As we've talked through that, I know some people have felt very burdened about like, well, what does that actually mean? Or what is that sin? How does that play out in my life? What do I do with the sin that I am struggling with? Does that mean that I'm not a believer? Does that mean that? And I love the way that John finishes this. The final time that he says this idea that we can't continue in sin if we want to follow Jesus. Is because he follows it up with this second thought that at first glance seems to make no sense, seems to be very confusing and detached and and doesn't seem to connect with John's call to not be uh, a people who sin. This is what he goes on to say. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. But then he says this line that feels a little disconnected. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. I'll be honest with you, all week I've been trying to kind of figure out and wrestling through what is John actually talking about here? There are a lot of people who, who say that this is a very confusing passage because if you've picked up throughout the book of 1 John, John doesn't always write in super linear patterns and sometimes it feels like he just writes in like incomplete thoughts. that He has like one incomplete thought and then another and he doesn't really connect the two and so it's hard to understand what he's saying. But this is what I believe John is getting at. He says that we, the people of God, have been born of God that if we believe in Jesus Christ, then we are a part of God's family. We are the children of God. We have been born of God. But then he makes this statement about Jesus, the one who was born of God. And the language John is using there is actually this language of begotten, the firstborn of God. And I I believe what John is saying is that in our struggle against sin, In our struggle against our flesh and our our earthly desires, we have not been left alone. That, That the firstborn of God, Jesus Christ, our big brother, if you will, comes to our defense against our temptation to sin and fights on our behalf and that our sin will not conquer us and overcome us because we have a big brother in Christ who has overcome and conquered sin. And if you are a big brother in the room, anyone a big brother or a big sister at all? I'm a big brother. Uh, two younger brothers, younger sister. Okay. Lots of you in the room. You know that as a big brother or a big sister, if you see your sibling getting beat up on the playground when you're a kid, you don't just say, oh man, that's too bad. Gosh, I wish that, oh, I hope they figure that out. That look, that looks like that's no fun at all. You should do, it. No. Big brothers, big sisters step in and intervene and defend their younger brothers and their younger sisters and make sure people don't bully them or mistreat them. I think back to when I was in college and my younger brother, we went to the same college. He was a a freshman and I was a junior. My brother's a great soccer player. He was playing intramural soccer. um, And I don't play soccer at all. So I went to the game to watch because he happened to be playing all of my college buddies. They were playing soccer too. They also were not soccer players, but they were playing soccer like it was football. Not like football football, but American football. They're just beating up on my brother and all his friends in this game. And I got heated. They were crossing the line and I was not okay with it. And so I went to the dorms, I confronted them. And I, well, I'm not gonna tell you what I said actually, because Jesus was still refining my heart at that time. And I was working through some things. I was young, brash, but I I had some words uh, and said some things. No, you can't do that to my brother. That's what big brothers do. And what John is saying is that in Jesus Christ, we have a big brother who not only confronts the evil one, but one who has conquered the evil one that in our struggle against sin we are not alone and that our sin it says an interesting phrase it says that it will not harm us the evil one will not harm us and as i say that many of you are thinking that doesn't feel like that's true i feel like i'm living through a season of life where i am getting i'm taking on a lot of harm i'm getting beat up i'm getting bullied life is kicking me in the teeth And we have to realize John is not talking about suffering in general or things that we go through, hardships that we go through. He's talking specifically about the context of sin. That our sin that we struggle against will not overcome us because Jesus has overcome the evil one. That the evil one cannot lead us astray from the person and work of Christ because he is our big brother who protects us from our temptation to sin even as we struggle against it. And so John is trying to reiterate one final time for his people that as you struggle against sin, as you push back against the temptation to sin, as you strive to live the life that God has called you to, even in an uncertain age, know that Christ has conquered and one day sin will not be a temptation you face, that you too will overcome sin just as Christ had. That is the hope and the assurance that he's trying to give them in an uncertain age. But he goes on, it's not just about our behavior, he also begins to talk about our identity. And he says that that we, the people of God, uh, are are children of God. That if we have been born again, we are the children of God. And again, this is an idea that John keeps coming back to over and over and over again. That the immeasurable love of God has rescued us, has, has saved us and has brought us into God's family and called us his children. We looked at this throughout the book as, as God is called love. And we've looked at the ways that that love plays out in our lives to forgive our sins, to cleanse us, to purify us through the work of Christ, to bring us into the family of God. And so John is saying, remember that you are a child of God. But then again, he, he has this weird addition that seems to not make much sense. Remember, he's trying to give assurance and he's trying to give affirmation and confidence that we can rest in, in an uncertain age. And this is how he finishes this statement in verse 19. He says, we know that we are children of God. And we also know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That does not feel very comforting. (laughs) Like it's great news that I'm a child of God, but then you're, okay, Satan's in charge of everything. That sounds awful. I don't want that. So what is John getting at in this this attempt to comfort? How is that actually good news? Because what you've got to realize is that when he says that the world is under the control of the evil one, what he is saying, the image that should be caught coming to mind is not that that Satan is, is besieging the world or trying to take control over the world and the world is resisting, it's that the world is literally just resting in the arms of the evil one. It's perfectly comfortable with the situation. The world and the principalities and the powers of this world are comfortable with the arrangement and they're just fine with Satan being in control, with the evil one reigning in this time. That does not sound like good news. And yet, what I believe John is trying to do is is he is seeking to remind us that we have a father in heaven even when it looks like the world is falling apart. That even as we look at the world and we see that it looks like it is under the control of the evil one, and let's be honest, that, that just feels self-evident. When we look at the world and we see what's going on in the world and the way people act and the, and the realities that we, we find in the world, whether it be war or famine or, or poverty or disease or sickness or, or, or hatred, I mean, it's very clear that the world is not the way God intended it. That is broken and fallen, and John is saying, in the midst of that, we can rest assured, because we are the children of God, that as the world rests in the arms of Satan, his people can rest in the arms of God, that we are his children, even when it looks like the world is falling apart. And I think that is such an important reality for us to, to, to grab hold of and to recognize and to believe. Because I think what I've seen over and over in my conversations with people, whether it be at coffee or lunch or breakfast or wherever, is that, that there's this phrase that keeps coming up again and again and again. And it's come up so many times that it has really caught my attention. And the phrase I keep hearing from people is I am afraid of where things are headed. I am worried about where things are headed. I hear that phrase again and again and again. And there's this fear about the state of the world, this fear about who's in charge and the ideologies that have taken power and the ways that that the world does not look like it did when we were kids. And so there's fear around the kind of world that's being left for our children or our grandchildren. And there's fear about where things are headed. And usually it has some sort of tie to to political ideologies and, and the people who are in power. And the problem with that is that we do not have to be afraid of where things are headed because we know where things are headed. All things, the story of history, all things that are to come, no matter how uncertain and no matter how much our age and our time on this world feels uncertain, we know that all things are headed to the throne of Jesus Christ. That all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be coming before the throne of God to acknowledge him as King and as Lord. That even as the world looks like it is falling apart, we do not have to be afraid because we are children of God. And to, to go a little deeper, I think it's fascinating that, that you see this reaction within the church and, and so many times it happens after an election cycle. That, that when power shifts and, and one political party or another comes into power, the church, whichever way it votes, says that oh, I'm just really worried about this person being in power and I'm really worried about where things are going. And what John is saying to you today is that it does not matter whether or not a donkey or an elephant is in the White House, the slain lamb of God is on the throne and we do not have to be afraid of whatever may come our way. That in an age of uncertainty, we can rest in the arms of God and not have to be afraid. That is our hope. And so John says that, that we don't have to be afraid, that, that our identity as the children of God does not have to leave us in a state of fear. And he says that our behavior in an uncertain age is one, that that we live out the commands and the calling of God and that we are not subject to the power of sin, but we overcome sin because Christ too has overcome. And just to wrap up this idea about Jesus being our advocate and and the way that he protects us and the way that we can rest as being children of God. Some of you, you don't even care about the political ideologies that are being said. You don't even care about the state of the world. You are just clinging to something. Your own personal life is in such disarray. You are going through it. Life is kicking you in the teeth. You're experiencing depression or loss or grief or death or sickness. And John, for you as well, is saying that despite your circumstances, despite what you might be going through, it does not change your identity. You are still a child of God. As the great theologian D.A. Carson says, without trying to minimize anything we are going through, none of us are suffering from something that a good resurrection won't fix. Amen? that is our hope in an age of uncertainty. And and to kind of wrap all of these ideas up uh, about our identity and, and how we should behave, John comes to the final thing that we can be sure of, and he says that we can be sure that we know the true God. That we know the true God. This is what he says to wrap up this letter. He says, we know also that the Son of God has come And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so you have to remember, this is again, one of John's big themes throughout this book, the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. And he has been living through a time where there's a lot of uncertainty about the person of Jesus Christ. His church is being torn apart about the identity of Jesus Christ. And there are all sorts of different ideologies and theologies about who Jesus is and what he has done. And if you remember some of the things we've talked to, there's a group of people who said that Jesus wasn't really human and God. There, there's no way that that could happen because God is spirit and human is physical. And so those two can't coexist together. And there's no way that God would actually suffer for humanity. And so Jesus was probably some normal person who took on the presence of God at his baptism, left him at his crucifixion and his suffering. And, and then it just kind of gives us some good teaching, but, but is outside, maybe Jesus is just a phantom and he appeared to suffer. And John is pushing back against those ideas because he saw the person of Jesus. He saw him suffer. He saw him crucified. He said, I saw him as the son of God and the suffering servant, and those two can never be divorced. And he is saying that if you want to know God, there's not some special knowledge you need to get from a guru, you simply have to look at the person of Jesus that Christians are those who profess and believe that God has a human face. And that if you want to know God, you look to Jesus and you see him in all his truth telling, in the way that he confronted the, the theologies and ideologies of his day. You look at him in his self-giving love in the way that he sacrificed himself for other people. You look at the way that he loved the ostracized and the abandoned and the pushed out and the people who were, were oppressed. You look at his mercy and compassion and you are looking at the face of God incarnate. And we too live in a time where the person of Jesus, that there's some confusion around who he is and what he's done. There's confusion about the character of God And so many people want to just make Jesus into their own image. And I believe that's what John is talking about. He has this really weird way to close the book where he says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And it really feels just like a a left turn and a hard turn at the end where he's giving these assurances. And then suddenly he finishes with a warning that we have to be careful not to, to worship idols. He hasn't mentioned idols at all in the book. But have you ever read like a short story where it didn't quite make sense until the very last line, and suddenly everything fell into place? Like, like there's this short story about a, a man that, as you read it, you're you're seeing him go through his day and, and the perspective of a man, only to realize in the very last sentence that the story was actually about a woman all along. You just put your, your assumptions in that place. Or spoiler alert, like another example would be The Sixth Sense, and it came out like 20 years ago. So if you haven't seen it, that's on you, not me. I'm gonna. Sp- spoil it. He was dead the whole time, right? But you don't realize that till the end, and it suddenly changes the entire understanding of the movie. And what John is saying, this last line is actually what the entire book has been about. The identity of Jesus and the way people were crafting him and making him into an idol of what they wanted and what they believed, rather than the true God. And we tend to do the same thing. One philosopher and and, uh, an unbeliever who was a, um, a philosopher in the 19th century in Germany, this is what he had to say about Christians, looking at them from the outside. He said, all of theology is really a projection, a roundabout way of describing our own best thoughts of ourselves and deifying them. That, that what Christians do is we take our passions, our convictions, the things that we care about, the, our anxieties, our fears, and we project those onto Jesus and make him into the Jesus that meets our needs in the way we want. The issue with that is Jesus was never intended to be whatever idol you need to help you get through the day. Jesus is the risen Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of the story. We don't get to make him into whatever makes us feel better. And so he says, warning, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from making Jesus into the image that you want. And the, the language there is fascinating, this idea of keeping yourself from idols. It's, it's this defensive strategy, this defensive posture, similar to like we might say about, about a football team keeping another team out of the end zone, like the Broncos did so effectively last Sunday, right, against the Cowboys. Like it's keeping them from, from the place you want to go, keeping yourselves from idols, defend yourselves from allowing this to happen to you. And you may be sitting here today and thinking, I don't know that I really do that. I I think I have a pretty good picture of who Jesus is. And that might be true. And I pray that is true for all of us. But what I know is we all have a tendency to fashion Jesus into the things that we think are most important. And Jesus is above all of our ideology, all of our agendas, all of our desires, all of our hopes and wants and dreams. He stands above and beyond all those things. And a test, a way you can understand maybe whether or not you've actually fallen into this and, and happened to, to craft Jesus into an idol of your own making. There's this question from, from Anne Lamar who she, has, she says this about making Jesus into our own idols. She says that, that you can safely assume you've created Jesus in your own image when it turns out that Jesus hates all the same people that you do, right? <laughs> that if he reflects your beliefs, that that, that your beliefs aren't challenged. If he reflects your political agenda and your political agenda isn't challenged, if he reflects your passions and your passions aren't challenged, your dreams aren't challenged, then you can be sure that you have crafted Jesus into an image and an idol of your own making. And so a question for all of us to contemplate and wrestle with as we close this book is, is, where are you tempted to make an idol of Jesus? To put it another way, where do you make Jesus resemble yourself rather than you resemble Jesus? I think it's fascinating that that's the note that John chooses to end the book on. The identity and work of Jesus. And he has this great way of summarizing who the person of Jesus is, that he is the true God And he is eternal life. That when we look to Jesus, when we see Jesus, we are looking on the face of God. That all of of God's presence and love and compassion and grace and mercy, this immeasurable love that we've returned to again and again, this love of the Father is all seen in the person of Christ who is the true God. And that he offers us eternal life now and in the life to come. And so John says, in an age of uncertainty, cling to the person of Christ. That whatever may come, whatever confusion we may face, whatever suffering we may face, whatever sins we might struggle with, cling to the person of Christ. And as I was thinking about wrapping this series on 1 John and and this letter that the beloved disciple wrote, I just kept thinking back through the person of John and and what he lived through, his story. Because you see, John was was the beloved disciple of Jesus. He was one of the inner three. He was one of Jesus' closest friends in Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He was one of the people who knew Jesus the most deeply and the most dearly. In fact, he was one of the only male disciples. He was the only male disciple at Jesus' crucifixion. And you have to wonder for him in that moment as he is seeing the person that he thinks is the savior of his people, the savior of the world being crucified and killed, the uncertainty that he must have felt, the confusion. Where is God? What is he doing And yet John's uncertainty doesn't end at the foot of the cross. Though he was one of the first people to see the empty tomb and to see that Jesus had been raised from the dead, the rest of his life as a pastor of the early church, as an apostle of the early church is one filled with uncertainty. I mean, just in this book alone, we say the way that the church he pastored for 40 years, the people he loved and discipled and shared the gospel with, were torn apart by false teaching and divided. We see John living through an age of uncertainty and that that he lived through some of the most intense persecution of the early church. Emperor Nero and Domitian, who literally fed Christians to lions and burned their bodies in their garden parties. And we know from church tradition that John was the last living disciple of Jesus, that he lived long enough to see all his friends martyred and murdered in the name of their king. I mean, he lived through uncertainty of the empire of Rome coming in and destroying the temple in Jerusalem, tearing apart his country and his people. And yet, through it all, through all uncertainty, he remained faithful and true to the God that he knew and believed in that had given him eternal life. My prayer for us as a church is that as we close this beautiful letter on God's immeasurable love, that despite what uncertainty we may face, that we could cling to the person of Jesus Christ, following John's example, even in an age of uncertainty. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we bring this letter to a close, I'm reminded of the life and the story of, of the Apostle John, the beloved disciple who knew Jesus so dearly and so closely. And God, I, I think of, of the stories in the gospel of, of everything that he saw, of Jesus' transfiguration, where Jesus was revealed in all his heavenly glory and in, in his earthly body. The moments that he ate dinner with Jesus and they laughed around a table in fellowship. The moments they wept together at the tomb of Lazarus. And I think of of the the prayer that John watched Jesus pray on his last night on earth. And I think of the words that Jesus spoke in that prayer about, about how we should be aware that in this life we will have trouble but take heart because he has overcome the world. That God, John, believed in a Jesus who had overcome. May that be what is true for us as the people of Waterstone, that we would believe in the Jesus who has overcome, that our sin does not have power over us, it does not define us. That our circumstances do not touch our identity as children of God and that we are a people who can know the true God in the person and work of Christ and cling to him in the midst of the uncertainty of our time. God, may your spirit fill us to leave and live with that conviction, that hope, and that faithfulness. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.